Hey, good morning. It's Mark. It's Rescue Cast number 53. Who would ever thought we'd get to 53? And we're going to change it up in 53. We're going to go back to listening to me for this particular podcast. So, you know, for those you want to tune out right now, go ahead. We're going to get back in interviewing some pretty good folks coming up here in the future. We've got a few of them already backed up. A um, couple of them coming up. So, little hey, some things are coming down the pipe. But um, what I want to talk about today is the old 15 to 1 static system safety factor. And you think, wow, hasn't this been beat to death forever? And I'm like, yeah, I thought it was. Yet, just the other day on Facebook, and I mean, let's take Facebook and consider it to be a reputable source just for this particular moment. And it was a pretty you know, reputable group that we were in, and somebody had mentioned the 15 to 1 static system safety factor. And I didn't get in there with all the other hate that gets thrown out and say, oh, you know, what are you, an idiot? You don't know what you're talking about. Because why are people still doing this? Like, why are people still quoting this 15 to 1 standard system safety, a static system safety factor? And I can only come up with a couple of reasons. Number one is they truly believe that the NFPA still dictates that. Number two is they understand the NFPA doesn't dictate that. However, as the authority having jurisdiction, the AHJ, they've decided that in their department that a 15 to 1 static system safety factor is what is going to occur. Either because they feel it's safer, they didn't feel like changing the system for previously, or the slides were you know, too difficult to change on the PowerPoint, or, or whatnot. But for some reason, they decided that's where they're going to stay. So what I wanted to talk about today is the 15 to 1 static system safety factor, where it came from, some comments around where it came from, and you know what else is out there that we could kind of look at. And I'm not trying to get all, you know, Dan Carlinish on this, be the next history buff, but I'm going to put in a little bit of context and a little bit of personal opinion into it. So, you know, you can send the emails in now or you can wait till the end. But um, yeah, so 15 to 1 static system safety factor and what it looks like moving forward. So I want to start this off and I want to quote Russell McCuller. Russell wrote an article October 1st, 2019 in Firehouse Magazine. And he, he he sums this up way better than I ever could have. He says, and I quote, Not long ago, I was explaining to one of my students that our training agency was undergoing a transition from NFPA 1983 general use to technical use rope and equipment. As I outlined the benefits, merits, and headaches of this transition, the student looked at me quizzically and inquired, so you're moving away from the 15 to 1 safety factors? I was surprised by his question. It was 2017 and this student was in his early 20s. His father is a venerable rescue and hazmat instructor who owns his own business and training and consulting with industrial customers. It served as a reminder of how much knowledge in the American Fire Service is handed down in the spirit of oral tradition from our officers, our mentors, and yes, even our fathers. We are so accustomed to taking people at their word, he had no idea that words such as 15 to 1, one person rope, two person rope, safety factors, and many similar sentiments had not been published in, 19, in NFPA 1983 since before he was born. I continued with his quote, That's right, folks. The last time 
These words appeared in NFPA 1983 was in the 1995 edition. This means that many fire rescuers reading this article, he's quoting this article that he wrote October 1st, have been free from these oppressive shackles their whole lives. Most people, however, do not even know this is the case. Worse yet, there are still plenty of instructors and even a handful of modern texts that still proliferate this erroneous folklore from our past. I'm a student of history, and like myself, I encourage students to ravishly press their instructors for the status quo and ask why. End quote. So, I mean, this is interesting. If you haven't met Russell, go to Oneiders. He presents a lot of the years there. He teaches, he obviously writes for Firehouse Magazine. Um, you know, he's a knowledgeable guy. He mentions a couple things here in this quote that I want to hit on first, and then we're going to get kind of more into the details of this. When he mentions this, that things are handed down in the fire service. That's absolutely the truth. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. But there is a lot of this. Well, this is the way I did it before. You know, this is the way we've always done it. And those are probably some of the most dangerous words in the fire service. Now, I've been sitting around in the fire service for a quarter of a century or so. And when I started, you know, and I can go back to the whole, you know, when I started this job, we didn't wear air packs for car fires. We didn't wear air packs for overhaul. We didn't wear air packs for dumpster fires. Let's back the bus up. My old man died of fire-related cancer. He was a fireman. I think he got hired in 62 or 64. They didn't wear air packs unless it was a chemical fire. Now, you let that thing, you know, sink in for a bit and think about that. So what I'm saying with this is, you know, we've definitely pushed on. We've gotten safer. We've gotten better. Some people might say it's risk, more risk adverse. I think things like wearing air packs to fires is, you know, hopefully going to save my life and let me live a little bit longer. So there is advancements in the fire service. What was done yesteryear is not necessarily what needs to be done today. And I'm one that thinks this 15 to 1 static system safety factor is one of those areas where we need to relook at this and move past it. So to back this up a little bit even further, we talk about NFPA 1983. So what is NFPA? NFPA is the National Fire Protection Association, and this is specifically one of the technical committees, the Technical Committee 1983. Now, a technical committee serves as the principal consensus body responsible for the development and revision of an NFPA standard or standards emanating from a technical committee project. Now, I'm quoting this right out of the NFPA website. Appointment to a technical committee is based on qualification of the applicant, a balance of interest categories on the committee, maintaining the committee at a manageable working size, and the ability of the applicant to attend and participate in all committee uh, meetings. A technical committee member does not need to be an active NFPA association member. So a couple of points right off the top on this. A technical committee member does not need to be an active NFPA association member. So you don't need to be working in this industry, per se, in order to kind of get on there. Number two, the committee is a balance of interest categories. So I sat on a right of the, one of the additions of the NFPA 1041 Instructor Professional Qualifications Technical Committee. 
And there was a smattering of representation. I actually sat on as an industry rep, even though I was a firefighter, I was accepted on the committee in my job in Ronin as at the time was a different company, but as an industry rep, not a fire rep. So we have industry reps, we have fire reps. We also have the representation from the people that make the workbooks. So the concern becomes as a fire rep or an industry rep, you have one concern on that committee or maybe a couple of concerns and they're going to be mostly driven likely around the end user. The folks doing the workbooks, they have concerns around the end user as well. However, their primary concerns, and I'll elaborate on this in a moment, is the fact that they need to get a certain number of cycles out of their workbooks to make it profitable. Otherwise, the workbooks cost too much money. So, in this particular edition, when we sat and we're talking about the NFPA 1041, everybody in the room, everybody that sat there agreed that in Fire Service Instructor 1, lesson plans should be taught. Not just how to teach from a lesson plan, but how to write a lesson plan. And everybody overall agreed with that thought process. You know, a room full of, I mean, I can't remember, this is a few years back now, but I mean, it's 10, 12 people in this room. Everybody says, you know, some, some colleges and, I mean, colleges and training institutions, they have a place on these committees as well. They're one of these balance of interests. And they're like, yeah, some of these actually teach them. We already teach them how to write this. So when we sat there and there was a few training institutes there, half the training institutes are already teaching how to write a lesson plan at this time, not just how to operate off a pre-existing lesson plan. So everybody's, you know, okay, yeah, thumbs up. We all agree on this. But there's a stop. We can't write it into that year's standard because there is some concerns about educational institutes, training institutes, being able to change over their materials to teach the new materials. There is a concern from the workbook manufacturers because they need so many rights out of their book and they just did a big change on 1041 when I was sitting on it. So they wanted at least another right out of that particular, another three years out of that particular committee before they started doing edits to their books. So while everybody agrees that it's a good idea, it's not implemented on that particular rewrite of the standard because there is competing interest within the committee that makes it impossible to come to a unanimous or even a majority consideration to do that. <clears throat> and I mentioned this about NFPA technical committees because NFPA 1983 is staffed by a technical committee. It is a balance of interest categories on that committee. It is not just firefighters that are hanging from ropes. It is people that make ropes. It is people that make equipment. It is people that sell equipment. So there is a, a mixture of opinions and end results or end goals that are wanted out of these committees. So while I talk about NFPA, we know, I mean, generally there's four standards that address technical rope rescue. 1983, the standard on fire life safety rope and systems. It was first issued in 1985. Um, it's done about every three years. There's also NFPA 1500, which talks a little bit about rope. There's 1670, um, training for technical search, and 1006, which is uh, training for, or standard for rescue technician professional qualifications. So there are all of these standards, and we're speaking specifically about 1983 here. And the reason I wanted to break this down is because 1983 
is written to not be used by the fire service. 1983 is the standard on fire service life safety rope and system components. It is designed for people that build gear. And I'll get into it in a second. 1500 Fire Department Occupational Health and Safety Programs. That is for us firefighters. 1670, the standard for operations and training for technical search and rescue incidents. That is for firefighters. But 1983, is there's no word firefighter in that standard. And furthermore, I'm going to quote 1.1.1 of Chapter 1 of 19, NFPA 1983, current edition, which I have is 2017. This standard shall specify minimum design, performance, testing, and certification requirements for life safety rope, escape rope, water rescue throw lines, life safety harnesses, belts, victim extrication devices, litters, escape webbings, escape systems, and auxiliary equipment for emergency services personnel. Minimum design, performance, testing, and certification. Now, I don't know about your fire department. However, in most of the fire departments that I've been around, trained with, gone with, drank with, whatever, we do not design, we do not test, and we do not certify rope or life safety equipment. I mean, heck, even our tower ladders, we send them out to one of the hydro and power authorities to do NDT testing on it because we are a fire department. We use it, we break it, we send it to somebody else to fix it and certify it. That's just how it works. 1.1.2 NFPA 1983 Chapter 1, 1.1.2. This standard shall specify requirements for new life safety rope, escape rope, water rescue throw lines, life safety harnesses, etc., so forth, so on. New is the key word there. Once it gets to us, it's not new anymore. So even if somebody decided that, well, hey, you know, we, we're going to certify. We're a fire department hack. We think we can certify. We've got, you know, a great work shirt attached to us, and they've got the latest, you know, flux capacitor valve that's going to be able to deal with this for us. As soon as we get it and use it, it's not new anymore. This standard specifies new, not used. So this is one of those things where this standard is not for the end user. It is for how the equipment is made. This is important as the story carries on. So what we're looking at here, we're so accustomed to listening, like I said, to the senior man, to the senior folks, that a lot of people don't realize that 15 to 1, one-person rope, two-person rope, safety factors, haven't been published in 1983 since the 1995 edition. Some of that used to be in there, absolutely. And in 1995, they took it out. I've got like four years left to retirement, and that's around when I started in the fire service. So this has been out of there for a long time. So who cares? I mean, 15 to 1, 10 to 1, G rated, T rated. As the manufacturers have gotten better, we look at something like an 11 mil PMI rope. I just grabbed some of their standard, you know, static, uh, static current mantle ropes. 11 millimeter ropes, 80 grams per meter, 12 millimeter ropes, 104 grams per meter, which means a 60 meter, 200 foot rope of 11 mil is the same weight as 150 feet or 45 meters at 12.5. So if you're carrying this into a backcountry, 
And there are a lot of firefighters doing backcountry rescue now. North shores of Vancouver, there are firefighters hiking up things like the grouse grind with rope. Tower cranes. I don't know about you. I get a lot of tower crane stuff. I think the tallest one we had was 480 feet. You know what? <laughs> when it starts coming into 80 grams a meter, or 104 grams a meter, and I'm carrying, oh, you know, 200, 300 meters of rope, all of a sudden that becomes a real big deal. And so the current edition of 1983, you know, has some main categories of life safety rope and equipment. You know, we have escape, we have technical use, we have general use. Whereas a lot of people I think reach back is general use rope and carabiner still have an MBS of 40 KN, minimum breaking strength, 40 kilonewtons or 9,000 pounds. I'm rounding here, it's 9,200 and change or something. Technical use rope is still listed at 20 kilonewtons or 4,500 pounds. Technical use carabiners are obviously less too. Um, though I'm just looking at the rope here for this particular example. So we have 40 can, we have 20 can. I think a lot of people look at that and go, oh my gosh, 20 can, we can't use that. You'd be hard pressed at this point in the world to find an 11 mil rope that's 20 kilonewtons. Uh, when we changed over my department, we went to the PMI Unicor, it was not a G-rated 11 mil. However, it still met 37.4 kilonewtons. The current, um, they've tweaked the formula, call it that, a little bit in PMI's current Unicor rope is now a G-rated rope. CMC has the G11, it's a G-rated rope. Sterling came out with the Tech 11 eons ago, and they have another one in their pipeline right now. What I'm saying is there's 11 mil general use rope, and there's very little 11 mil that's down to 20 kilonewtons. I mean, heck, I have six, six millimeter rope in this shop that darn near makes 20 kilonewton. I have five millimeter rope in this shop, power cordage, that, you know, exceeds 20 kilonewton. So when you start looking at the manufacturers, they've carried on, they've made the end user what the end user wants. The end user is demanding stronger, lighter ropes. Back to that NFPA committee. It is a consortium of interests. So as the manufacturers go to take away from the end user so that we get what we want, the committees that sit every three, five years, and takes a couple of sittings, like to do a rewrite of it, aren't keeping pace, my opinion only, with what's going on in the world. So the other thing about 1983 is it was supposed to start off as a rope standard and it quickly became an everything in the rigging system standard. And that's something important to remember as well, because a lot of these numbers, as once again, my humble opinion, as they align well we have 40 can rope we better have 40 can carabiners <coughs> excuse me that's not necessarily the truth but because they started with rope and then realized we need to add other components in here i think perhaps maybe the easy way was taken out in some of these the first edition of nfpa 1983 was five pages i believe now it's over 90 so as you can see, this has grown in scope and it's grown in size. So one of the most important takeaways about 1983 is that not since a very long time, like my career in the fire service, has there been single or single person, double person, static system safety factors. It now prescribes that the authority having jurisdiction 
can indicate this. And that's really not even in 1983. That's in some of the other ones, your 1006s, your 1670s that say, hey, the authority having jurisdiction can dictate what the safety factors they want to use. NFPA does not impose any sort of safety factor on your equipment or your team's systems. A one-person load has no set value. There is some mentions during a belay test of what they would like a belay to catch, but there is no set value in NFPA for that anymore. So with all of that NFPA background aside, how did we get to 15 to 1 to begin with? Many of you are probably aware of the history. June 27th, 1980, FDNY, Fire Department New York, <coughs> excuse me, Rescue 3 was called out to a high-rise fire in Harlem in New York City. This is 1980. Like, I just want to emphasize that. I was not in the fire service in 1980. My family was in the fire service in 1980. They got some big pay raises in the 80s. They went from, we'll just say it, almost being like a second-class blue-collar job to the job that it kind of is right now in North America today. Wages went up. Respect went up. But with that, professionalism had to go up as well. We'll talk about that again in a little bit. But in the 80s, I'm not saying firefighters were unprofessional. I'm not saying they weren't brave. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that it was more of an infancy in the rope rescue world than what we're looking at now. So during this incident, firefighter Jerry Frisbee became trapped by fire on the seventh story. Rescue three crew using a half-inch diameter, 150-foot-long, nylon roof rope i don't know what a roof rope is um i've tried to look it up I, i'd have to talk to some old fdny guys if anybody's listening i mean if you know what what they term as a roof rope i'm assuming probably a safety line for working off a ladder for cutting holes in the roof but that's just a guess so they used this 150 foot long nylon roof rope and they lowered firefighter larry fitzpatrick down to pull out frisbee under the combined weight of both men the rope snapped they both fell to seven stories to their death. This is obviously still debated, this incident. However, one thing that's not debated, it was a catalyst for change. And now, once again, we're back in the 80s. We're talking kind of pre-fire department rope technical rescue. I mean, Rescue 3 was there. They were obviously doing technical type rescue, but it wasn't the technical rescue that you sit and think about today when you go to an Eiders or something. And a bit of a different parameter then. What happened after this is the IAFF in 1981, so a year after this occurred, published a white paper entitled Line to Safety. If anybody has a copy of this, I'd just love to read it just from a historical thing. I can't find a copy of it online. This was an opinion piece, <clears throat> excuse me, and it laid the foundation for the first edition of NFPA 1983. This 1981 Lion to Safety IFF paper, uh, sorry, IFF, International Association of Firefighters, indicated that while a 7 to 1 or 10 to 1 safety factor, safe working load, SWL, was normal in industry, it would not be good enough for the fire department. So it was stated that the load needed to be 600 pounds and that a 15 to 1 static system safety factor needed to be applied to get us to 9,000 pounds on that safety factor. This paper mentions at the time it would take five-eighths to three-quarter inch ropes to accomplish this task. 
So that's kind of, we still haven't got to the why of 15 to 1, but this is where it came from, is the IFF. Now, once again, a little tangent. The IAFF is the International Association of Firefighters. It is a union. I'm not speaking ill of the union. I belong to the union. I am currently a member of the IAFF. However, it is a union and the FDNY is the largest local. Well, there are, there are a few locals in the FDNY, but let's just say the FDNY for argument's sake right now isn't multiple locals, it's one. The FDNY is the largest local inside of that union. The FDNY membership makes up the largest percentage of members in that union. And the IFF does great things for its members. I mean, there's been some really, really good things that come out of the IFF. Two in, two out. I mean, that's something that the union pushed hard on. Some of the turnout gear projects, absolutely. But at its core, it's still a union. It's still sometimes tone death to its members. And I'll mention an article in the New York Times on October 2nd, 2015, that had the general president of the IFF pulling back support for Hillary Clinton. Unnamed members of the union, because they were speaking without permission, had said that the union at the time was tone deaf to the membership and had endorsed a typical labor-friendly party without the support of its membership. And they retracted that support because of overwhelming pressure from its membership. And I don't mention this because I'm, you know, I'm trying to get on to, you know, love or hate Hillary Clinton. I'm not even an American. It doesn't really make a lot of, uh, you know, I don't really care really one way or another. What I'm saying, though, is, is the union is a union. When the membership, you know, speaks up loud enough and rattles sablers hard enough, the union is going to listen, is going to change direction. Because the union at the end of the day, when we talk about these interests, for instance, on the NFPA committee, you know what the union's number one interest is? is membership. So don't piss off the majority of the membership because that's how you lose unions. So with the FDNY being the largest percentage of membership in the IAFF, of course, when an incident occurs that is near and dear to the FDNY, and I, you know, please don't think I'm trying to belittle the incident or anything like that. If you've had your friends in this line of work die, it's nothing to joke about. Go stand on parade to Colorado Springs. Go to the funeral of one of your mates. It's, it's nothing to joke about. And people want change. It is a catalyst for change. It pushes agendas forward. And this paper came out of that. And this paper came up with a 15 to 1 static system safety factor. So, once again, the NFPA Technical Committee was developed to wear a standard for rescue ropes. 1983, that standard was called the Standard for Life Safety Rope and Equipment for Emergency Services. It was originally called the Standard for Fire Service Life Safety Rope and System Components. It was first released on June 6, 1985. Prior to this standard, fire rescue services had no agreed upon definitions or standards for the equipment used in rescue type scenarios. Now, near 30 years later, this document has been revised about every three to five years and it's obviously become an important driving force. We follow the NFPA standards. My particular work safe regulations where I live in British Columbia actually outline that ropes and associated rigging equipment must meet NFPA 1983 current edition. It states right in the regulations. So it is definitely a driving factor. What we're talking about here is where it came from. 
So where do the actual 15 to one numbers come from? And once again, if somebody's got this line to safety paper or knows somebody that was on there that read it, wrote it, I mean, these people are going to be 60, 70 years old now, but I'd love to talk to them. It's hard to say where the 15 to one came from. Obviously, the people that wrote that life uh, line to safety paper felt that the seven and 10 to one safe working loads weren't enough. And I want to chat about this. I mean, I said it before here, and I want to say it again, that this was kind of prior to, there wasn't even a Nader's at the time. I mean, Nader's started shortly after this, which was the North American Technical Rescue Symposium, which morphed into IDERS, the International Technical Rescue Symposium. So this was kind of back in the, the, the dark days of rope rescue. And so people did what they thought was best. I mean, you just watched friends die and you went, hey, how safe do we need to make this so that we don't see anybody else's friends die? And they came up with that 15 to 1. Whether scientifically or not, that's something I just can't find. Now, the most plausible explanation out there is that the whole knots placed in a rope reduce its strength by a third. So you look and you go, hey, I got a 10 to one safe working load because I'm working with wire rope, but if I'm working with nylon rope and I put a knot in it and I get a third reduction, maybe I need to have a 15 to one safety factor so that with that knot, I'm still maintaining my 10 to one safe working load or my 10 to one static system safety factor with the knot included. So that's the most plausible explanation that I've come up with talking to old timers. But once again, that's just an opinion piece here. It's, there's nothing I've seen that's been published about that. So I want to go back again into the, the whole why of this. We're talking the early 1980s. NFPA 1983, I mean, they started meeting in 1983, just, you know, pure chance. It was released in 1985. Like I said, I had family members in the fire service back in the 80s. And it was the professionalization of the fire service. One of the things, 1982, I mean, this is really, you know, the infancy of all this. And I don't know if Arner Larson and Zan Mothner and the BC Council of Technical Rescue started doing drops because of June 27th, 1980, or if they were planning on doing them two years later anyways. But that's where the whole 10 to 1 static system safety factor came out of. The belay competency drop test method came out of the BC Council of Technical Rescue, which we used forever. Um... And those testings in 1982, and I believe they're in Penticton and a few other places, recommended that 10 to 1 static system safety factor. That info came out at a 1986 Nader's uh, Symposium. Once again, Nader's is the precursor to the Eiders. North American Technical Rescue Symposium, the precursor to Eiders, the International Technical Rescue Symposium. It's November every year. If you've never been, get a ticket. In 1987, Reed Thorne, Arner Larson, Hal Murray, and John Dill started doing more testing of belay lines based on Arner's and Zan's 1982 testing. This testing in 1987 is where the original breaking of ropes by the Gibbs Ascender occurred. Like, this is one of the tangents to go off of. I mean, I heard it when I got on the job, and I got trained in tech rescue in 97. Oh, we can't use Gibbs Ascenders. They, they shear ropes. Those tests were done in 1987, 10 years before I ever touched a Gibbs Ascender. Just to kind of give context with what we're talking about here. Those 1987 tests wrapped up with the 1989 Sedona drop tests. 
the Sedona drop tests, I'm putting in air quotes if you can see me, because the Sedona drop tests have been, you know, like the um, Blake Company drop test method. It's one of those things that rescuers have kind of held their hat on over the years and referred back to. The information from the 1989 Sedona drop test was published in the Are You Really on Belay by John Dill in the Response Magazine of NASAR, the North American Search and Rescue, in 1990. I'll go through that entirely huge history lesson to make you understand, I guess. In 1980, those guys were doing the best they could hanging on the outside of a building. I have been in fires where I have run out of air and smashed out windows with my helmets and stuck my head outside because I've taken my mask off and taken a breath and got nothing. And I don't know what kind of fire these guys are in, but if that's the type of situation they're in, they don't have time and they are going to use whatever they have to use to try to effect a rescue. Because you know what's deadlier than falling seven stories from a building is dying from smoke and fire inside of it. I mean, you're going from one bad situation to potentially another, but at least it's a chance. But this occurred before the 1981 line to safety by the IFF, the opinion piece, before the first technical committee from 1983 was created and then published in 1985, before the 1982 British Columbia drop test methods, before 1987 to 89 Sedona drop tests, and before John Dill wrote Are You Really on Belay in 1990. We look at this now. We sit at places like Eiders. We go and, you know, share ideas. There's groundbreaking stuff. I mean, I started Fire Tech Rescue in 97, and we were basically using gear that I had used in the Army climbing. I mean, it was like that much of a throwback. We started with eights and munters and then found, hey, the munters don't pass the belay competency drop tests. And then we ended up on racks with 540s and then IDs in 540s. All dedicated, main dedicated safety and eventually over to MPDs on twin tensions and then MPD twin tensions on 11 and now twin tension clutches on 11 plus DMDBs if we're wrapping into a patient with ASAPs and clutches. And that turn... In 1987 to probably 2001, we went from break, from eights to break racks to, I, to uh, pencil IDs on 12 and a half. And maybe in around 2005, six, we started looking at twin tensions with 12 and a half. And this is what I'm saying is that timeline compared to from when we went twin tension on 12 to twin tension on 11 to clutches to maestros to seriouses to all of this sort of stuff it was the first 20 years we, we we're going in you know snails pace sloths pace and the last seven years stuff's just falling off the shelves and changing changes are occurring faster and faster and i'm not saying this change is good um Continual change on a team that has rescue as a tertiary duty can be just as dangerous as sitting with old equipment, for instance. So these are one of those things where definitely it has to be looked at. This stuff was back in the days before things like Grimp Day. Grimps didn't start until, I think we're in the 15th edition, 16th edition, somewhere in there. So, I mean, that's a new phenomenon. Uh, Chow was only five years old. Lifeline, I think they did their third 
this year. So when you look at that, and those are where, sorry, someone's texting me like mad. Um, you know, these are where a lot of these were now, you know, tried and true techniques, baptized under fire sort of thing, as technical rescue became more and more prevalent. I mean, even in BC, technical rescue only came around because of fall protection regulations. Before that, the people just hit the ground and we just came and just put them in a bag and carried on. And it's as we've become and wanted more safety for our people, like our workers, and then more safety for our firefighters getting those workers that this came about. But this has only been a phenomenon in the last 25 years. And this incident that occurred that started this was the beginning of that phenomenon. And so to kind of wrap this up, this is where I look at and go, static system safety factors. I mean, are they done? We've been chatting about them with, you know, they, they were initially in 1983 and they were 15 to 1. And then they came out in 1983. And now it's, you know, listed at the AHJ can use the safety factor that they feel is adequate for their particular you know, team, their response area, you know, with the risk mitigation that they're doing. But should it be removed entirely from the standard? Should we look at it and go, the team should use a, a safety factor or a force limiting device or some other type of risk mitigation technique to ensure that the loads do not exceed, you know, the breaking points of the anchor and the equipment and cause undue harm to, you know, personnel. Like, is there a time now for that language to be changed again? And a lot of people, you know, we talk about force limiting now and they look at stuff like that Kirk Mothner and Traverse Rescue and these types of people. I mean, they came out with the 540 belay in the mid 90s and then Kirk's gone on to do, you know, force limiting and jolt forces and things with the NIF, um, the NIF grants that he got, the federal government grants for search and rescue. And he's come up and there's are great papers to read because there's some huge information in there about this force limiting device because now you look and you go if the device slips at six kilonewtons or four kilonewtons or 12 kilonewtons or whatever you want to have it say six to 12 kn now how strong does your system need to be if your ropes are going to have that clutch have that release have that limiting factor to them so that your anchor and your people and your equipment never see peak forces do we need 40KN ropes? Do we need 40KN carabiners? And furthermore, the NFPA, by stating the authority having jurisdiction needs to ascertain what safety factor it wants, what's the base unit of this? Are we going to go with 200 you know, kg load, or 2KN? Stick with the old fire department 2.4? For a rescue size load, like what what are we using as the base? Are we going to weigh all of our rescuers, write their numbers on their helmets, and just get you know, hey, I got uh, seventy eight pounds on the end of the line today. Woohoo! We can jack this way up, right? And so it leaves room for subjectivity. I still think, and that's where I feel the force limiting is the way to go, because where I can be subjective about the static system safety factor, it's hard to be subjective about the force limiting because it's a scientifically proven fact on the devices. So anyways, I've rambled on long enough. You've listened to me for 40 minutes talk about the 15 to 1 static system safety factors and kind of the history behind it and why I think it should probably just be put to bed altogether. Not just the 15, but static system safety factors in general 
and we look at things like force limiting into our systems. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. I'll put it up on our social media sites and I, I want to hear what you guys have to say about it. I mean, this is a, I don't want to see hate on it. I mean, people, you know, it's, it happens these days. I'd like to see some, you know, good discussion about this, about why we're staying, if you are with these types of safety factors or, you know, why we should or why we should move forward. Thanks a lot for giving us a listen. Bye-bye.